All right, well, we are continuing our study of the fruit of the Spirit, and our text today has sort of peace at its center. Peace is, is an equilibrium. It's a, a calmness. So joy we had last week, that's a, an ability to rise above circumstances. Ruth talked about having a lot of difficult things going on all at once and feeling joy in the middle of it. Uh, and peace is more the thing that allows you to keep on the bouncy road. So when I think about that, I think about uh, driving in a, a Lincoln Town car or, or a Cadillac that, you know, we're going too fast over the road, but it smooths it out. And I contrast it with riding along in my dad's Isuzu Trooper. Um, if you have not ridden in an Isuzu Trooper, consider that a great blessing to you. Uh, every tiny change in the roadway is amplified, and it feels a little bit like when our lives are not peaceful and when stuff comes up. Peace is difficult to maintain even if we get it, because life throws circumstances our way faster usually than our little gauntlets can, can knock it away. You'll pardon the reference there. Uh, fundamentally, that is a problem because we expect for life to be different than it actually is. So, I expect life to go smoothly. Life, oddly enough, does not continue to go smoothly. Things happen. This happens in your life as well. And so, my expectations end up unaligned with reality. So, to give you an example of that, I would like you to just take a moment, uh, close your eyes, and, and think of what these words evoke. Honeymoon sweet. Do you have a mental picture? Okay. That's the mental picture you have. If we could put up the picture that I've got in the, the deck here. Uh, this was, they've torn it down now, the Hillsdale Inn's honeymoon suite. I kid you not, I used to drive, when I lived near there, I used to drive past it all the time. It's very convenient because that's 101 right there that's crossing it, so you've got a major arterial at 101, and you're in a tower. Now, anybody's honeymoon suite picture look remotely like that? Now, if I put up that slide and said, uh, this is a, a flight control tower at a municipal airport, you would've gotten that? Okay. But because you were expecting something a little better, this is a disappointment. And if you were arriving, uh, carrying your dear one, or she's in, in, in the arms, and that's where you ended up, I guarantee there would be no peace, at least for a little while. Right? Anybody feel like they could deal with that with grace? Okay. I mean, if you're gonna watch a lightning storm, maybe, but anyway. They turn it down now, and, and that's, that's a blessing to all who might have gone there. <laughs> Apparently it was a big deal in the 70s. I, I don't know. So how do people cope with the fact that life ends up differently than we expected? Uh, I think there are three main ways that we do that. We distract ourselves, we indulge ourselves, or we master ourselves. And so let, let me expand on these approaches to peace a little bit. The first, distract yourself. This is just a simple, I'm gonna focus on something else. 
So the, the easiest thing, now that the game makers have got it so that they know exactly what will entice you into the game forever, video games are perfect, right? There's no reality that you have to deal with. If you need to respawn your, your life, you can do that. If you know your friends sign off, somebody else will sign on, it's all good. Whatever was going on in your life, you just completely tuned it out. Fantastic. But there are older-fashioned ways of dealing with it. People get together in clubs, and they think about something totally unrelated to the, what's going wrong in their lives. People have hobbies. Um, I used to turn wood on a lathe, and it was so nice to just start watching that sawdust fly, and, you know, I wasn't actually pretending it was somebody frustrating me, but <laughs> there may have been some kind of correspondence there. I don't know. You get into a loop, perhaps, though. You've got... Work is going badly, that's fine, I'll, I'll look for a relationship. Um, but then the relationship maybe starts going badly and work hasn't gotten any better and now you've got more problems so you're playing video games. It's, it's not an ideal way to deal with things, but for a moment it gives you something that feels like peace. Another way of doing the same avoiding thing is with drugs or alcohol. Um, lots of medicines are good for you, lots of those medicines that are good for you when used in an inappropriate way allow you to tune out or to tune into something completely different uh, in a way that is not going to be a long game play for peace in your life, just in case anybody was curious about how that was going to play out. And there's a third way, um, and I'm afraid I'm going to have to quote the great theologian Taylor Swift, who says, it's like I got this music on my mind saying, gonna be all right, because player's gonna play, 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 play. And the hater's gonna hate, 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 hate. Anyway, she's gonna shake it off, right? She's got boy trouble, no problem, she'll hang with her crew for a while. Or maybe she's got boy trouble, she'll get another boy, right? But this is the, the philosophy, and I'm making fun of it, right? You, you caught on to that. I've done this. Well, it didn't go well that time, but that's okay. We'll ignore that and try again. And after a number of them, you stop being able to do it, but for a while it works. Maybe. All right. The, the second, second, what did I tell you, was to indulge yourself. I don't mean sit in a bathtub full of bath salts and a tub of ice cream, okay? That does sound kind of good, actually, right at the moment, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is I'm gonna indulge myself by making myself the measure of what I should be. Hey, I've already reached the mark. Five foot seven, it's the perfect height, because that's how tall I am. Or how short I am, depending on how you want to look at it. Except I said that it's because I'm tall. And so I get to redefine reality kind of in my terms, indulging my own, well, yes, I lash out at people, but I'm kind of a lasher, you know, so it's okay. Right? You don't mind. I know you were the victim of it, but, I, you know, I've got to be me. And certainly there are people who have communicated that via song. I'm going to go ahead and not sing uh, the Paul Anka lyrics that, Frank Sinatra made popular, but he did it his way, right? He's proud. He, he, he made mistakes he made a few, but 
The thing he's proud of is at the end of the day, I was me. As if there was another choice in the wallet, right? It's, okay, fine. And then maybe, I don't know if you know who Aubrey Graham is, um, better known as, as Drake. And uh, Drake is living life right now, Maine. And this is what I do, I'm a do, till it's over, till it's over, but it's far from mine. Do you get what this one is about? Can I stop belaboring it? Yeah, okay. I'm going to be weak, right? What's wrong with that? All right, so the third way is the best of these three in the way that it sounds to me. If you've got to pick one of these three, this is the one I want you to do. Totally fleshly desire. I'm just warning you. That's mastering yourself, by which I mean you build a set of rules by which you run your life, and as you accomplish living by those rules, you pronounce yourself good. You protect yourself in that way from anxiety and then write, well, I'm not responsible for that stuff that's going wrong. I just have to be able to take whatever's coming. I just have to be this person in the storm. And probably the classic thing that I've ever seen is also an incredibly depressing quote. Um, Marcus Aurelius uh, is, is the guy for this, who says, it's not as though you have thousands of years to live. Death hangs over you. While you still live, while you can, be good. And, you know, if, if you got that lesson from your parent, like, how do you walk away and, and know how to do that? Anything that I could do before I got there, I can still do. But the stuff, the rules I couldn't follow are still a problem. The fact that I'm supposed to do good because I'm going to die, I don't know, it's not the best motivator I've ever heard of. Um, I've got a quote from Nietzsche. Anybody desperately need to see a quote from Nietzsche? Somebody said that. Okay, so we can throw it up and I'll just summarize. What he says is Christianity, Buddhism, the value of these systems is it takes little people who don't matter, but we want them to work, and it gives them a reason to get up in the morning. I've made it much more interesting, by the way, in my <laughs> synopsis there. So what, what do these three approaches have in common? In all three of them, I am responsible for defining what my piece is. I make my own piece. I'm responsible for saying what it is. I'm responsible for experiencing it. It's all on me, which kind of sounds good at first. Um, but you wonder how long I can ignore things and still be well. Meanwhile, things are happening in life, and the fact that I've shut them out is going to be a problem, right? Um, is doing whatever I really want to do a viable way of living? If your answer to that is maybe, or yes, stop and just think. Pick a roommate or a spouse who lives however they want. Not however you want, however they want. Is it possible that this could go sideways? Just, just a, a little. Um, and then is it even possible to give myself enough rules that I can compress myself into this place where I actually experience peace, where I'm, I feel peace because even though life is horrible in a lot of ways, 
I'm still living by my rules. I'm my, my own person. Fundamentally, I think all three of these require you to deny reality in some sense. And that's not good. That's not what God has for us. And we're actually going to get to the scripture in a minute. Okay? But I want to give you one more pass on why these approaches don't work. Um, life, life hands me too much for me to be able to repress the stuff or express the stuff or avoid the stuff in healthy ways. So when I'm dealing with it in any of these three ways, I'm at risk for you experiencing the consequences of my not having peace. Does that make sense? So suddenly you become a victim of my lack of peace because of the way I process difficulties. I lash out, I whatever it is in, in my case. And the way anxiety is responded to, the way we process it, even if we think we put it to bed, isn't always helpful. And the example I'll use, my, my wife Karen is here, and she can confirm or deny that when we were first married, one of the things that was difficult for us is when we'd have conflict, we'd be having this, this interaction, and she'd say something, and I would, I would have a zing comment ready for her. It would, oh, oh, it was so beautiful, I was going to be able to deliver that. But I didn't want to, because this was my loving wife, right? And even though she was wrong about whatever it was we were having conflict about, presumably. <laughs> I still didn't want to do that, and the only tool I had to not have that thing go sideways was for me to be quiet and go away which in a 900-square-foot condo was somewhat difficult, that left me feeling like I'd accomplished something because I hadn't blasted her with the torpedoes that I knew I had in my head ready to be delivered. But it left Karen feeling like she'd been abandoned by the person who was supposed to be with her in sickness and in health and, you know, in minor squabbles, right? So... A consequence of my thinking that I processed this right is I've now abandoned my wife, effectively. That's how it felt to her, at any rate. So this, this is a problem. And, and if you just think in general relationships, do you want to be in a relationship with someone who tunes out when things are hard? Does that sound like an attractive quality in a person that you want to have as a close friend or family member or whatever? Um, insists that whatever they do is right for them. Yes, I totaled another car, but I gotta be me. <laughs> and then I just, I picture the person who is glued together with a set of rules that they can't keep. And the powder keg that that's creating, that at some point something's gonna set it off and the whole thing's going to explode in an ugly way. Or is there a fourth possibility that there is an external source of peace that I don't have to manufacture? I don't have to be responsible for the supply of it. I just have to pick it up where, where it's manufactured. And so we get to what Paul says. He said, about time. The, the place Paul starts, I love this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. If you're church like me, you sang this so many times as a little refrain, 
that it's lost all meaning. I, seriously, it feels empty when I read those specific words. So I just want to say, express joy. What does that mean? It means that when your life is terrible and 98% of it is horrible, and you've got 2% that's okay, then celebrate that 2%. When you're in the 2%, yes, life doesn't stink as much as it usually stinks. Yay! And then maybe 5% of the time, even though you've still only got 2% of the time is actually worth joy, what if you spent some of that time rejoicing? And that began to creep through the entire experience of your life. And you begin to infuse the crummy times with the existence of a joy that's based on reality. And Paul's saying, look, but before we go anywhere else, you've got to understand who you are and respond to God. You've received a bunch of stuff from God, even if it's just you're still taking breaths. Okay, I've got things to be joyful for. Fantastic. Next thing, he says, be gentle. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. So the way I'm thinking about that this morning is be gentle by God's nearness. So if I'm aware that Karen is near, I am going to speak in a different way because there are some jokes that she doesn't appreciate and others that she does appreciate, and I'm going to tune it to her presence. Yes? I guess I'm not, you know, the i got to be me in every situation, it turns out. In the same way, if I am actually cognizant that at all times God is near, my experience of every moment is going to become different. And what that means is I am now able to say God is near and he's here experiencing this with me, and I don't have to lash out if lashing out feels like the natural thing. I don't have to run away. I don't have to whatever my natural inclination is. And then the third thing is be anxious for nothing, right? And yeah, do not be anxious about anything. Okay, we're done. No. no. Fortunately, he doesn't just end it there. He, he gives us a, a methodology, if you will. And it's not say this prayer. It's not do this deed, he says, pray and petition with thanksgiving. I think what Paul is getting at here is oftentimes we get into a cycle where prayer becomes less of a relationship thing and more of a, I need you to do this, I'm really afraid about this. It becomes a series of petitions. And what he's saying is infuse every communication you have with God with thanksgiving. Uh, this week, I found myself multiple times just praying as I was driving, and I was so grateful that I made it through that yellow light. You know, like, what a dumb thing to be thankful for, and yet, it felt like a little gift. And so, you know what? I'm going to give God credit for every single thing that remotely strikes me as remotely good, okay? And what I found is, as I do that, suddenly I want to be talking to him more, and what we're interacting about becomes less my laundry list of complaints and frustrations and more about who he is and what he's about and what I 
what I am, who he's making me. That's pretty exciting. Um, okay, and he says, though, present your requests. So he's not saying um, God isn't interested. Hasn't God provided you with enough? You shouldn't have to ask for anything. You should just be thankful. He says, go ahead and ask. But in the context of an ongoing interaction in which not only are you experiencing and celebrating joy, even if it's a tiny fraction of your life, not only are you gentle to others because you know he's near, but you're thankful to him because you've got this, this interaction going on, and these things all come together, and they have an effect. And that effect is, from God, I get peace. I'm not manufacturing the peace. I'm not responsible for the peace in any way except have I connected with God? Or have I abbreviated my interaction to uh, to-do list? Or do I only do it at the time prescribed? Or however it might go wrong. Now, how important is that to Paul? Um, if you were here for service, I do apologize. If, if, you, if you want to preach, I recommend that you not do this. Yeah, I'm going to do it. So a little bit, i got to be me. Um, because I think, I think we, don't, we don't get it. So I said rejoicing in the Lord always became sort of noise, background noise to me. I don't want this expression to become background noise, but I want you to hear it as Paul writes it. So in Romans, he says, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You go, okay, so he's, he's got a consistent message. Yes, he does. First Corinthians, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And at this point you go, okay, he's turned it into hello. Like it's spiritual hello. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think what he's saying is, this is foundational. This is fundamental. Before we get into what I'm going to get to, some of which is telling you what you're doing wrong, and some of which is celebrating what you're doing right, the basis that we have for interacting at all is... God's grace through Christ and the peace that he gives. And I'm sorry, I'm going to keep going. Galatians, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, I, I added a little more there because he's talking about this interaction with Jesus. What, what did he do? He gospeled. Okay, getting excited. Ephesians, grace and peace to you from, the, uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you repeat that phrase at this point? Grace and peace to you. Okay, good muttering. Excellent. <laughs> I'm not going to jump on the pew this week. Uh, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, 
in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. All these letters, he's starting it with a message about grace and peace. Where does grace come from? Did we manufacture that? No. Likewise, peace has to come from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians, same thing. First Timothy, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Likewise, in 2 Timothy, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. It's not just Paul, Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Second Peter. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Revelation starts with a similar mention. Why, why have I read them all? For one thing, repetition actually helps us read. It also helps us tune out, and I'm cognizant of, of doing that to some extent. But I don't want you to walk away with anything if you haven't got that fundamental step laid, which is that grace comes from God, and peace comes from God, and there isn't any other source that's going to be an effective supply of either one. And the reason that I know that is because it's so consistently given in Scripture. Now, if you're interested in uh, how that phrase might have implications elsewhere, uh, John back there is cooking up a seminar about blessing, and I would be happy to tell you more about it. Okay, once God establishes peace in you, we get back to Philippians. What does he say? Now you've established peace, so follow the rules. No. He says, okay, so peace has been established, and now take it to the next level. So he says, joy, gentleness, peace. And now he says, what are you going to think about? You're going to think about true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy things. When I was a kid, this became a rule. You weren't supposed to watch this movie or listen to this music because it wasn't one of those things. And I don't think Paul means it as a rule. What Paul is doing is saying, more and more, joy is going to permeate your life even though you've only got the experiences of 2% of life meriting it. Okay? I'm taking a ridiculous example. If you've only got 2% of your life is joy-filled, let's talk. But even if it's that, you're celebrating it the rest of the time. And gentleness is pervasive because God is always near. And peace is there because you've got a connection with God. And now he's saying, what are you doing with your mind? You're continuing to add to your understanding of who God is. All these things describe how God is, what God likes, 
what God created in the first place and his purpose for you. And the more you understand those things, the more you're going to be able to take that peace and turn it into a blessing to other people. All right. He then says something that makes me a little worried because he says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. I'm totally comfortable with Paul saying that. Though you have to look at passages like the one in Galatians where he's kind of ripping on them for being idiots and listening to some other people instead. First Corinthians has some pretty harsh commentary. And you have to understand he's not saying... I'm a model who always does everything in the storybook way. He says, what I value is what I want you to value. The teaching that I've given you, I want you to follow. Well, we've all got this, so we can all follow Paul. Okay, he's a model. He's still valid. But I'm going to go a little further than that and say, do you have a model of Christ-likeness in your life that you can look up to in flesh and blood? They could be younger than you. They could be whatever. Is there a model that you can look up to? And who can look up to you? Who, who can say, I know they're not perfect, and they're not even Paul, but nonetheless, what I want to have in a relationship with God has to get through where they are now before it's going to grow past it, and so they're a great model for me now. So when Paul says, do what I do, that scares me a little. My son Calvin, he's, he's 16, he's got the, the spiritual, unspiritual gift of sarcasm like I do. He was texting me the other day, he did not like the outcome of the World Cup game. And uh, I said something about how he was rooting badly. And he very gently said, Dad, aren't you the guy who gave me four or five examples of my bad World Cup fandom? I said, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. But you know what? I'm a model for good and bad. And the fact that my son is willing to call me on it is a really good thing in a model relationship. Right? You don't want to be a model who thinks that you've got it all together. Uh, okay, so he says, what you've learned, received, or heard from me, what you have seen in me, and we don't see it as much, we, we learn it. What does he say? He says what Tim always says. Don't just hear it, do it. Whatever I've taught you, do it. Which means... Part of this whole experience of growth and faith that at its center includes peace is I'm continuing to take in these good things that, that Paul has described, that God has made, and guess what? I'm not just getting head knowledge, I'm putting it into practice. And that's going to change how I encounter the bumps in life. Okay, and then he closes out by saying, I rejoice for your concern. They've given him a gift, they support him financially when they can, and he's received something, he's excited about that, but he's not that excited about it. Excited, not excited. Uh, he says, you know, 
it, it wasn't necessary. Thank you, but it wasn't necessary because I'm good whether I've got abundance or whether I'm in love. And that's a thing that only happens with the basis of peace because what he's got is contentment. And if we are in my dad's Isuzu going over the road of life, feeling every bump and bruise, banging our head on the top, that's not a place where we're going to be content. Um, and I'm willing to take you for a ride in it if you don't believe me. So then the question is, how do we put that into action? And I said the, the first three ways of trying to feel peaceful had, had the liability that they didn't face reality. And I think a lot of people think that Christianity is partly about denying reality. And this is just another passage where that's profoundly not true. Paul is writing to people who are going to be experiencing persecution. Uh, some of the people that he and Peter were writing to are already experiencing persecution when they say grace and peace to you. This isn't a theoretical exercise. This is a how are we going to get through our lives that are far more in turmoil than most people in Silicon Valley can relate to. And starting by seeing reality with open eyes is important. And then the second thing we have to do is not just see what's around us, because fixing our eyes on that isn't going to help. It's got to be putting our eyes on the source of peace to receive it. And there's a, there's a letter that C.S. Lewis wrote a friend, and he's talking about his wife, Joy, uh, who had cancer and she was going to die soon. Um, but he's not talking about that. He's talking about an experience that she had sometime before. He says, Joy tells me that once years ago, she was haunted one morning by a feeling that God wanted something of her, a persistent pressure like the nag of a neglected duty. She, she felt this and she turned it into, it must be rule related. This must be about a rule that I missed following. But the moment she stopped worrying, uh, until mid-morning, she kept on wondering what it was. But the moment she stopped worrying, the answer came as plain as a spoken voice. It was, I don't want you to do anything. I want to give you something. And immediately, her heart was full of peace and delight. And then Lewis explains to his friend what he thinks is going on. He says, St. Augustine said, God gives where he finds empty hands. He says, a man whose hands are full of parcels can't receive a gift. Perhaps these parcels are not always sins or earthly cares, but sometimes our own fussy attempts to worship him in our way. Incidentally, what most often interrupts my own prayers is not great distractions, but tiny ones, things one will have to do or avoid in the course of the next hour. All right, so Lewis is saying she thought she felt unsettled because she had to do something else. And what she discovered was she felt unsettled because she was lacking something only God could give. And for anybody who's come to follow Christ, at some level you've got a story about that. 
And it's important to hold on to that story and understand how it connects with God's ongoing grace and ongoing peace so that it's not a thing that happened in the past, but it's a thing about which you can experience joy that's making you gentle, that's giving you peace from the God that you are now in a relationship where you had no right to be in his presence before. This all builds into deeper and deeper relationship, and so we don't close or empty our minds or distract ourselves. We fill them with God's perspective. We're, we're down here on the, the ground floor, and you know the, that ridiculous honeymoon suite is a silly vantage point, but it's, it's better than standing on the ground if what you want to see is how things really lie. So as we see life coming toward us, we see it in this momentary way God has a perspective on the whole thing, and he knows us better than we know us. And so it's that ongoing relationship where we go, God, I don't understand what's happening. Can you fill me up? And he goes, absolutely. I'm going to give you my peace that you could not experience in any other circumstance. We're going to sing just the, the chorus from uh, It Is Well With My Soul there. And I think most people know the story of how that was written. Guy's warehouse burns down, his family's crossing the Atlantic, the boat sinks, the kids die, his wife survives. He's heading to meet her, and he writes that song. He says, when peace like a river attends my way, when, when I'm sailing and everything goes the way I want it to, the waters are calm and just as I want them, they're glassy if I'm a water skier. He says, but also when sorrows like sea billows roll. So the good times and the terrible times, the worst things ever, violent, sudden death, breaking of relationships that are critical, Whatever my lot, he taught me to say, is well with my soul. If you want to experience peace like that, you don't get to tune out. You don't get to fill your, your life with rules that aren't going to help. You don't get to say, I got to be me and run with it. You got to get down on your knees and say, God. I want to reconnect with you. I want to experience your plan for me in a way that circumstances are totally blinding me for. So, I'm praying to you, and I'm going to remember to be thankful for when the storm wasn't rolling. Or I'm going to remember to be thankful for the person who sat with me when I was coming through so much pain and grief. I'm going to close uh, the message, but I'd like, like if we could get the, the worship team to come on. And I want to just tell you sort of a story. So about seven years ago, I was working hard to make sure that my little company got acquired by a bigger company. And that was absorbing the frustrating work. 
and I was sort of happy for things to come to an end because I'd been a little stir-crazy for a while. And when the end came, the company acquired all the engineers, and those of us who were cost center people uh, were, were cut loose, but I was on a contract sitting in an empty internetless office watching over data, and so I had literally nothing to do except have lunch with pastors who were available and talk to my wife about what we were going to do next. And that was a great five months, even though it was a miserable five months because I didn't know what was going to come next. But what came out of that was we went through a number of, okay, it's time to change. What things might Mike change to? And the one we ended up running with was, I'd like to work in ministry. Let's, let's have me go to seminary and we'll figure out how to make it work. We didn't have enough money to, to last without a job. About a month after I started school, the acquiring company called and said, actually, could, could you join us? Because we, we need you. And I thought that was a, a great thing. And in a lot of ways it was. I got to manage people who I got to develop in a way I've never been able to do before. I got to have a team that was spread across the world. I had a paycheck coming in and that was awesome. But the day-to-day -day grind of that job over time became more and more unpleasant to me. And I did not want to keep going. And the thing that kept me going in all of that was kind of what we're talking about here. There were moments of joy virtually every day. Developing an intern, getting to see how they're doing and find out how their life is going, fantastic. I got to be the pastor of IT to some people who were going through tough times, and that is exciting. There were other things that were good, and I, I celebrated those, and I thank God for what he'd done. A couple years ago, I moved into a different, different role, and it was much less tragic in a lot of ways. But the beautiful thing in the situation has been the peace didn't come from the circumstances getting easier. They are still not. God didn't say, I'm going to smooth this out and then you're going to be okay. What he said is, I'm going to be near and so you can be gentle. What he said is, my grace is sufficient for you and you get my peace along with it. And that is the only way that I've been able to keep doing what I'm doing because I've had it so terribly, but because I'm a wuss. And I need a God who's way bigger than me, and one who's willing to bear with my weakness. And that's the one we have. I'm going to pass the bags for offering after, after this, and I just want you to know, this isn't about you putting money in. This is, did you come prepared to give? If you did, it's your opportunity. Do you have a prayer request on, on one of the cards in the seat packs? Drop that in if you like. But all of this life is about his prerogative, his will, and his empowering what we do. And this is just one more way in which we acknowledge that.
God, I thank you for loving us. I thank you for taking care of us even when we didn't know that you were taking care of us. And even worse, even when we were running far from you. But I also thank you that when we tried to draw close to you, that you effectively drew close to us. And I ask that you would give us peace in the middle of whatever circumstances we're experiencing. Not, not peace like a, a magic pill, but peace like relationship with you and understanding who you are and who you want us to be. I thank you that not only are you able to do that, it's what you deeply desire. In Christ's name, amen.